Hi there, welcome. It is Downtown the Podcast, episode number 65. From the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, I'm Rich Kimball, joined by Carrie Haskell, our weekly visit with a couple of talented folks, usually from the world of entertainment. And this time around, a couple of very talented directors, uh, Ken Burns, who has been telling America's story for nearly four decades through his wonderful documentaries. We'll talk with us about his new film series, Country Music, that comes to PBS this September. And Lynn Shelton, who's been making great independent films for a number of years, has a wonderful new one out that stars Mark Marin called Sword of Trust. And we'll talk with her about that as well. We remind you that our podcast is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Our radio show airs every day out of Bangor, Maine, America, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, WZON, WKIT. HD3. We've got streaming audio on our website at downtownwithrichkimball.com. But if you're not if you're not able to access the internet, how'd you get this podcast? That's what I'd like to know. <laughs> <laughs> Tricks up their sleeve, Gary Askell. That would seem to be, uh, <laughs> if you can do one, you can do the other. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, well, let's kick things off here on the podcast with a, a guy that uh, we're fortunate enough to call a friend of our show. He's been on with us a half a dozen times through the years and and it's become standard practice every time he's got a new project coming out. Ken Burns joins us to talk about it. His latest well, is an epic. Well, aren't they all? But this one uh, is just incredible. Had a chance to watch all 16 hours of his documentary, Country Music, which premieres on PBS on September 15th. And we caught up with Ken on his way to Bakersfield, California, for some press events out there in the hometown of a couple of Big names and pioneers in country music, Buck Owens and Merle Haggard. Hey, Rich. How are you? Doing just great. Thank you so much for making time for us, as always. No, no. Other way around. Thank you. I've been immersed uh, all 16 hours the last you few nights. All 16. God bless you. We're all grateful. I'm, I'm in a car with uh, Dayton Duncan and Julie Dunphy, my two co-producers. Dayton also wrote the script. Uh, and we are traveling down the Central Valley of California on our way to Fresno and Bakersfield to honor, you know, uh, the Maddox brothers and Rose and Buck Owens and Merle Haggard and, and, and Dwight Yoakam uh, uh, by, by going out off the normal beaten path of a promotional tour and doing stuff in Fresno and Bakersfield. As somebody who teaches history, but my first job was as a country DJ back in the mid-1970s, uh, this was like a, a homecoming for me, and it was, it was just wonderful. I think of a couple of, of wonderful quotes that come up in the film. Uh, the great Harlan Howard, who says, Country music is three chords and the truth. That's the, that's the most important one. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Rich, but no. that's the most important one. You know, uh, that's why it's in a central position in the introduction. Uh, that, that says it all. And then Merle Haggard says country music is about the things we believe that we can't see. You're, you've done it. I, you know, you might as well just go write your thing, uh, do your whatever you're going to do uh, with yourself because you got it. You figured out. You broke the key. Uh, you, and you're talking about stuff in the first six minutes of this film. Both of those are exactly right. The line from Harlan Howard that's spoken by the narrator and Merle Haggard, the things that we believe in but can't see. And yet I understand that the story of country music was more complicated perhaps than you thought it would be when you first began the project. Can I tell you that there hasn't been a project we've worked on in 40 years that isn't so tremendously more complicated than what we came in believing? <laughs> you know, what we have to do is shed 
our biases and our baggage and, more importantly, shed the conventional wisdom we think we have about a particular subject. And it's only by resetting to zero that we then permit these things to happen. And because we never stop researching and we never stop writing, we are permitted to constantly adjust over the many years it takes us that we insist we have to have to do this um, to change the, the, the film as we learn more and more information about something. And, you know, filmmakers are notorious for not, you know, once the scene is working, is, is not wanting to touch it. Oh, that's too good. Let's leave it alone. But in fact, we've learned just to sort of sigh and say it's complicated. We have a neon sign in our editing room that says that, and then set about to make that perfect thing even better because of the contradictory, um, you know, uh, information we have. Roseanne says about her father, Johnny Cash, that, you know, he could hold two contradictory things at the same time and believe in them with a kind of equal force. And so as we as storytellers and filmmakers know that at the heart of a good story is often that fact that you have to hold two opposing things um, and not choose either one of them, but understand that the complexities of life, which country music mirrors and reflects so well, despite the three chords business, that truth is uh, filled with contradiction and undertow. And that's, that's human life. And, and that's why country music so effective. I thought it was fascinating early in the film uh, when you discuss the origins of the three principal instruments of country music and how that in many ways uh, reflects the diversity of country when you talk about the banjo, the fiddle, and the guitar. Yep. Well, everything about American music is mongrel, right? There's nothing pure about it. You'll take music that has a kind of homogeneity from a country or a continent, and uh, then you'll do something. You'll mix it with something else, and it will be, you know, great. You know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. The role of uh, radio was also huge in the rise of country music with those the superstations, the WSB in Atlanta, uh, WLS in Chicago with the old barn dance, and also WSM in Nashville, of course. That's exactly right. I, I think we, we wouldn't have had country music sort of catch on as quickly and as, you know, so firmly in everyone's heart if there hadn't been radio disseminating it, particularly uh, in the Depression when people couldn't buy a record. Um, they could listen to it for free. And so you would find the one, quote, luxury, I would suggest it's not a luxury but a necessity, in the poorest of families would be a radio uh, that would connect them to the world. Uh, I made a film on the early days of radio, and the great radio commentator Norman Corwin said that radio abolished loneliness. Mm. And that's because it may, it may have been it may have been possible for you to hear uh, Hank Williams saying, I'm so lonesome I could cry. And you could cry too. And in those tears, you would have a connection to somebody else. One of the overarching themes in this wonderful film is the role of women, starting with Sarah Carter, and then all the way through to, to Patsy Cline, uh, Kitty Wells, Patsy Montana, uh, singer-songwriters who were way ahead of their time, like Loretta Lynn and Dolly Parton. Women has have always been an incredibly integral part of music. This was a stunning and unexpected discovery for us, too, and um, that the foundational, the two foundational folks in country music uh, are arguably, you know, Mother Maybell and Sarah Carter, Sarah with her voice and Mother Maybell with her guitar picking, which has influenced everybody else. 
and all as you as the list you just gave us it goes all the way through and many of the issues and 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 conflicts of today are mirrored in the generations of of women who had to you know be that much better uh uh and and avoid that you know uh, difficult executive and all the things we're talking about with Me Too uh, have been there for the beginning and so we love the fact that Loretta may not call herself a feminist or may not speak about women's liberation but she's talking about these themes well before anybody in in rock or cut or focus doing and that's that's pretty impressive and so yeah that that knocked our socks off. We're talking with Ken Burns here on Downtown. Uh, the Carter family, the first family of country music, like so many country artists, their lives in many ways were a country song as well. I, I didn't know a, a lot of the background there, but what a fascinating story they are. You you, you can't believe it. And in fact, they represent the um, uh, Sunday morning of the early beginnings of country music. Um, they are supposedly about mother and family and the home. And um, this, and, and Jimmy Rogers is the opposite of this, the Saturday night and uh, the rogue, the scamp, uh, the sort of uh, screwing up, the people for whom, you know, you have to go to church the next morning to sort of reconcile uh, your sins of the previous night. But then, of course, within the story of the Carter family is a melodrama, you know, of, of incomparable dimensions that sort of belie the outward purity of the story, and that's very human, too. And we don't need to judge it. We can just accept it. We've all been through what they've been through. We've all have experienced, or we know people who have experienced what they went through. And then when you get to the story, no one in Hollywood would invent <laughs> the final chapter uh, or at least the, the cementing of Sarah Carter's future. And, and you know, we're, you and I are not going to give it away to your listeners, but... Uh, this is about as great a story as you could possibly come. And, oh, by the way, it's in episode two, yeah. <laughs> you know, and there's many more episodes to come. Country music in its early days was still largely regional. Can you explain how World War II helped to nationalize country music? Well, World War II did nationalize it, and that's a really important thing. Um, first of all, Amer all of American music is a mix. And so when a country mobilizes and goes to war, you do that mix with people. So people from every uh, corner of the country find themselves with people from regions they might never in their lifetime um, get to meet. And in fact, it's World War II that begins the incredible mobility of Americans who begin to sort of cross-pollinate with everybody else. Um, and so when we think in, a, in that superficial, conventional way about what World War II is, the music we always use as the soundtrack to it is uh, the swing music of, of Benny Goodman and Glenn Miller and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and that was popular. But as popular, if not more popular, was country music and the various um, songs that were sung. And so we're, you know, Patsy Montana, I'll Wait for You, and Elton Britt, you know, there's a Star Spangled Banner waving somewhere. These are all the songs that everybody heard, and it helped. I mean, certainly radio is helping, particularly the stations like WSM uh, with those signals. But this this is the beginning of the nationalization of country music. And you're going to come back from World War II and you're going to stop calling it hillbilly. You're going to eventually stop calling it country and western. You're finally just going to say what it is, country. And by that time, that's true. It's across the country. It doesn't just mean rural, which is, of course, the obvious and literal 
understanding of it. It came from rural places. But it's so interesting that the story of its extraordinary growth is tied as much to cities as it is to the rural areas from which it sprang. That's something that I think people may find very, very interesting, uh, especially from the first episode, is how the earliest parts of country music actually sort of came out of the city of Atlanta. Yeah, so Ralph Peer has been recording race music. That means rhythm and blues. Uh, that means Bessie Smith. Um, and he's also doing a lot of ethnic records, you know, Chinese and European, French and Italian and German and Slovakian. Um, music, and he wonders whether there might be a market for, you know, this old uh, hill country music, old-time hill country music. And, of course, there is. And in 1923, he records Fiddle and John Carson uh, in uh, Atlanta, who's a mill worker who came from the hills, uh, but is very has been very much urbanized, and he's willing to drop all of the urban, I, 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 I'm not sure I want to say sophistication, but at least to adopt that hillbilly posture. He, be, he adds Fiddlin' without the G uh, to his uh, nickname, to his moniker, and that takes it off. And then a, a few years later, four years later, in 1927 in Bristol, uh, Tennessee, uh, just across the street from Bristol, literally across the street from Bristol, Virginia, he records the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers, and they don't sound anything alike. Jimmy's Saturday night and the Carter family, as we discussed, are Sunday morning, and it's off to the races, and it's, it's going to be from then on picking up all different flavors. But what's key in the early days that's not spoken about too much, which our series reflects in every episode, is that there's always an African dimension, African-American dimension to this. You know, the banjos from Africa. Mm. But uh, A.P. Carter travels around with Leslie Riddle. A.P. can remember the words but can't remember the metal melody, and Riddle can't. Um, you know, the influences of a black artists on, on Jimmy Rogers and Hank Williams and Bill Monroe and Johnny Cash, and everybody, it's all there. So it's always been a mix from the very beginning, and um, we're thrilled to, to sort of share this inclusive uh, story. Um, it wouldn't be American music unless it was a melting pot of all sorts of influences, you know, from church music to, to traveling medicine shows, to minstrelsy, to, to, to Tin Pan Alley, to all sorts of things go in to make up what we call country music. But also, I could say jazz and also rhythm and blues later on. So they've all got the mix. That's the characteristic of any uh, American form. And, of course, rhythm and blues and country are going to be the parents of rockability and therefore rock and roll. So many great artists are portrayed in this film. Uh, but to me, the heroic figure of the story is Johnny Cash, who brought together so many styles, embraced artists from all genres, and, and could never be anything less than true to himself. That's exactly right, and I think that he is the, the polymath, the patriarch of it all, who, who arcs across our series because uh, he very conveniently, for us storytellers, marries into the Carter family there at the get-go, there at the Big Bang. And, of course, it is that that is the last story of our, of our series and, and is the bookend of, of what we're doing. Um, yes, and I think it has to do with his – he is the ultimate country – because he understood that it was never one thing. So he is going to prisons and saying, you mean something to me. He's going to Native American reservations and saying, you are not less of a human being than me. He, he's looking at the poor and the downtrodden. He's speaking to the dark side as well as to the light side. He's including a gospel 
uh, song in every uh, performance that he does, every one of his television shows at the, you know, against the wishes of the producers, um, includes a gospel show. He's bringing on new talent. He's reaching into folk. He has a friendship with Bob Dylan. He's, he is the person who is restless and unsatisfied, and he is symbolically represents that energy and that appetite that's been at the heart of country music from the beginning. And that's not then to take away from the Merle Haggards and the Dolly Partons and the Hank Williamses and the Patsy Cline's, but just to say that, you know, he stands out in proud relief uh, as, as perhaps country's greatest ambassador. I've read that uh, you've said you're a convert to country music now. Uh, was there one story, one performer that pulled you in? What was it that, that drew you into this world? We drink the Kool-Aid on every project we do, but I don't <laughs> think we've drunk it more fully and with deep satisfaction than we've done here. Um, yeah, no, I, I didn't. I knew some. I worked in a record store. Uh, my daddy and my granddaddy sang to me uh, what you would call country songs and folk country songs and hill country songs. My people come from the Appalachian Mountains of Virginia, Burnsville, to be, adva- to, to be precise, still there in Virginia. Um, but uh, it wasn't my music. But when we start a project, we dive into it, into the deep end, and, and we love it now. And I'm, I'm so happy that it's in my life. And I have, as Charlie Pride says in the opening, you know, a song for every mood. Uh, even though one might make you cry, uh, you feel better for crying, he says. And that is a cathartic power of country music is so pervasive and so exciting that I can't wait to share it with the rest of the country. And, and, and as we've experienced bringing people into our editing room during the process, the folks that know a lot about it and love it, you'll say, wow, I had no idea that that's why that song was written or what the circumstances of that person's biography or how great that songwriter was or whatever it might be. Uh, that there was even something new for the most ardent of country fans. And for those people who say, well, I don't know much, uh, they say, I didn't realize that I did know more than I did because how, how wide country music embraces. And for those who say, you know, I, had, I have a friend of mine, a dear friend who says, um, you know, Ken, I've loved all the things you've done, but country music, I don't know. And then he sat down as we had a screening of it, and he was in a puddle at the end, and now all he listens to is country music. And is still abject and apologetic that he could have possibly been, you know, proclaimed any apostasy while we were well, you know, before that moment. And, and that's exciting to us. And we hope that, you know, we all understand that somebody might come in with Emmy Lou Harris or the, or the outlaw movement, or maybe from the get-go with Jimmy Rogers or the Carter family, or certainly no one. If, if you know, if somebody doesn't like Hank Williams, then I, we can't help you. Um, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Uh, but, uh, or Johnny or, or Merle uh, or, or Dolly or, or, or Loretta. Um, these are all the great, great, great composers and singer-songwriters of, of this genre. But we're just so thrilled to be able to share the backstory. This isn't the reading of the telephone book. We'll leave people out that we, it was painful for us to leave out in order to tell a story that we hope will bring people in and send them, uh, you know, uh, to the music uh, that they want to find out and send them to the folks that maybe only have a mention here, um, but they want to know more about uh, we're we're so excited that we'll be able to share that with the rest of the country. Ken, the amount of uh, interview footage for a project of this scope must just be massive. Beyond what you use for the actual documentary, 
how important is it for you and your team to catalog and preserve that that information? That's huge. You know, we've just taken the full interviews, not the edited interviews, the full interviews and their transcripts, 101 people, 100, more than 175 hours, and given it to the Country Music Hall of Fame so it will be available for scholars and students uh, in the future. But, you know, you know how maple syrup is made, you know, 40 gallons of sap. <laughs> To make one gallon of maple syrup. We did 101 interviews, 175 hours. We looked at 100,000 photographs for the 3,300 we have in the final film. We had 1,000 hours of footage that we collected. All of it had to be boiled down uh, to the 16-plus hours of this series. So uh, our cutting room floor is filled with good stuff and very, very hard choices of, of what storytelling is about. And so we're, we're thrilled that we are able to be able to suggest in an excellent companion book that Dayton Duncan has written and in the DVD extras that we have, but also in the kind of uh, stories that we initiate and, and can't completely tell that people can go and, and go look up that memoir or go look up that story or, more importantly, just go get that music. And that's what we're very excited about. This is not the last word. We hope this is the first word. Uh, before we let you go, I did want to ask one quick question about uh, the, the process, the making of the film. I read a while back that Peter Coyote, who serves again as your narrator and does such a wonderful job, likes to do cold readings. Is that right? Cold, cold readings, that's exactly right, and he's, he's, he's really good at it. So here's the thing. I'm what's called the scratch narrator. That means from the very first time, after maybe two drafts of the script on paper, I'll read it. And then this becomes a radio play. We're not going to waste the editor's time uh, putting in images. We're just going to kind of listen to it, see the talking heads, but listen to uh, basically look at a black screen until we've worked on it. And so every time we change an uh to a the, I go in the booth and reread it. It makes no sense to bring Peter in early, right? Mm. So when we're 98% of the way through, then we sort of say, let's, let's bring in Peter. And not only does he read it cold, he doesn't read it the picture either. So we don't care whether he hits the same marks that I did. The editors go back and readjust to him. It's like, you know, a hand-me-down suit, right? I've been wearing it. Then he puts it on and, of course, makes it look much better. But we'll, we'll change uh, a cut to fit him. And that's really important to us, that meaning is everything. And, and Peter brings this extraordinary meaning. And it's often take one or take two. Uh, that we're using uh, in in most of, of the stuff. And we're willing to break it up, phrase at a time. Um, we hold these truths from take seven, to be self-evident from take four, that all men are created equal from take one. You know, that's the way we cut this stuff up and choose a narrator in the booth. But with Peter, you can sometimes, he'll read it and we'll look at each other and say, well, will you do it again for the insurance company? You know, just, just in case we lose this perfect take one. Uh, he's great, and and he takes the meaning that's there in my uh, imperfect uh, voice, and and puts it in this great set of pipes, and even adds more meaning to it. And we bless him. He's our brother. Uh, we've worked with him for decades now, and and we can't imagine leaving home without him. For most of there's a wonderful line by Vince Gill late in the series. He says, "All I ever wanted out of music was to be moved," and and you have done hey, this. Hey, Rich. You're, you're killing me. You're killing me. Every single thing that you've brought up is, is you've gone right to the heart of what it is, whether it was a Harlan Howard quote or what Merle says in the intro or what Vince says in the last episode about moving. That, that's exactly what it is. Uh, 
the emotional archaeology that has always been at the heart of the work that we've done, uninterested in just excavating dry dates and facts and events, and not interested in the baser emotions of sentimentality and nostalgia, but real deep emotion is what Vince wants, what Winton Marsalis means when he said this is the art of the invisible and that art tells the tale of us coming together. Uh, it's the connection with others that we feel at that deep emotional level. And that's, that's the heart of our series. And the fact that you found that means that, at least for you, we've done a, a good job. Well, our thanks to, to you, to Dayton, to Julie, and everybody involved in this wonderfully poignant, moving, at times funny, and remarkable series, Country Music, coming to PBS in September. And as always, Ken, thank you for spending some time with us to talk about it. I'll pass on your compliments to them. They deserve them as much as me. And uh, we're so thrilled to be able to share it with your audience. And thanks again so much, Rich, for watching all of it and for asking such um, thoughtful questions and getting it. Ken Burns with us here on Downtown. Carrie, you've seen, you've seen quite a bit of this series as well. It really is terrific. And it's tough when you're covering nine decades of music. Obviously, some things get left out, but I, I didn't see many oversights in there. Uh, they touched on all the bases and I think highlighted the really important parts in telling this remarkable story. I think everything that you could possibly want as a country music fan is covered in there. And if you're not a country music fan, the history of country music is still so important to the to the whole country, the, to the history of our country. It, it's fascinating whether you are into country music or not. Yeah, and I would defy anybody to watch the series and... And if you don't come away a fan of country music, you'll certainly have some respect for the music and the artists and the story of it. And, and as always, Ken Burns and, and his his team do a phenomenal job. Country music coming to PBS in September, and I believe the soundtrack is actually going to be released uh, maybe in a couple of weeks so people can start listening to some of the great tunes. They had to get clearance on something like 450 songs for this documentary series. It's just amazing. Yeah, the music uh, and and no, you know, not a lot of full songs except at the, the end of the episodes, but big hunks of songs throughout every episode and and lyrics and it, it's it's a uh, encyclopedia of country music. Yeah, sure is. Ken Burns, country music. Hey, when we come back after this quick word from Cross Insurance, we'll talk with actor and filmmaker Lynn Shelton about her newest sort of trust. First, this from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. One, two, one, two, three, four.
it is a matter of trust. The new film from Lynn Shelton, a wonderful movie called Sword of Trust. It stars Mark Marin and a perfectly cast group of actors who tell an interesting story about a, a guy who owns a pawn, pawn shop. That's Mark Marin. Two women come in trying to sell a sword. What they then tell him is that the sword is proof that the Confederate Army won the Civil War. Marin dismisses them, as you might expect, and then his assistant explains that there are so-called Civil War truthers out there willing to pay top dollar <laughs> for this kind of artifact and thus begins a journey into uh, a funny and at times poignant tale of, uh, of Marin, the two women, the people around him, and and those who have an alternative view of reality. It's a wonderful film. We had a chance to talk about it recently with director Lynn Shelton. Hi, Lynn. How are you? I'm good, Rich. How are you? I am wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a quest. We've been trying to get you for a long time. I've been uh, such a fan of your work for so many years, and, and this new movie is just absolutely wonderful. Everything about it, the cast... Uh, the direction, the writing, the cinematography, uh, kudos on, on just a wonderful movie. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. I, I like it. I like that kind of enthusiasm. <laughs> Very nice to hear. Well, the cast is is great, and, and I, I wonder, so much of your work is done through improvisation. Do you look for people who are comfortable with working uh, in an improvisational setting? Oh, for sure. It, there are lots of actors. Some of my favorite actors on earth are not great improvisers, and that's totally fine. They have another kind of magic, which is to take the written word and turn it into something that it seems like a real person would say. Um, but I knew that I needed a very carefully curated cast to pull this movie off, and that cast had to include people, every single one of whom had to be able to um, – uh, you know, find their way to the beats of the scene. They really are, it's a very special brain, you know. It's somebody who is able to create an emotionally truthful performance and, and a real well-rounded character, but also is a writer, you know, to some degree and is able to just, like, let words come out of their mouths that, um, that, that you know, is, is appropriate to the, to the scenario. And if it, if it can also elicit a little laughter, all the better, <laughs> in, this, in this case anyway. Well, uh, casting is perfect in this. And, of course, it starts with Mark Marin. You'd worked with him on, on Glow, on his series. Uh, I think you'd done a comedy special with him. But when did you know you wanted to make a film with Mark? I knew I wanted to make a film with Mark the first time I directed him on his show, Marin. So that was back in 2000, very beginning of 2016, because I met him in 2015, almost four years ago, exactly four years ago, on his WTF podcast. And he kind of hired me on the spot, asked me if I would direct his TV show his last season. And I said, yeah, no problem. Um, I'd love to. And I, it was a very vulnerable kind of moment in the, in the scope of the series for his character because he had fallen off the wagon. Mm. His character had fallen off the wagon and he, he'd lost everything. And he was hitting rock bottom in the first episode of that, of that show, um, that, that season. Um, and then he ends up going into rehab. And, you know, it was a, it's a very, it was, he was giving himself acting challenges that he had never done before, you know, and, and he really learned how to act in that show that he created for himself. So the first season, the difference between his acting um, performance uh, in the first, in the first season compared to the fourth season is kind of remarkable because he just, he just taught himself how to act. And he ended up being, by the time I worked with him, 
it was like, wow, this guy, he was still a little raw in terms of his talent, but man, did he have a lot to give. And he really understood how to engage and how to listen and how to make himself available emotionally. And I just saw untapped depth there that I wanted to see myself and I wanted the world to see. So I asked him if he would collaborate with me on something. And we actually started to write a script for another movie. And it just was so slow going because I don't think he ever really understood that as soon as we had a script, I would make it, you know, but he'd never been through that process before. So he just kept kind of being very lackadaisical about it. And I finally said, look, I I really want to get on set with you again. And I really want to put you at the center of a movie. And he said, well, if you write another movie, you know, on your own, I'll do it. And so I did, I just came to him a few months later. I was like, okay, it's done. Give me your two weeks that you promised me, you know, we're going to go make this movie. And he couldn't believe it. I love his podcast. Yeah, you've been on a couple of times. I think it's the best podcast out there. He's such a good interviewer, and that starts with his ability to listen. And I have to think, well, obviously for any actor, that's a great skill, as you mentioned. But particularly if you're doing a lot of improvisation, listening is just going to make you uh, live in that moment so much more. That is absolutely correct. And and I just did a press tour with him in New York and listening to him talk about that very thing, how the podcast is what kind of enabled him to to learn how to act because he had to learn how to listen and he had to learn how to give somebody else, you know, stage time, um, to, you know, so to speak metaphorically, because his, his, you know, first and foremost, he is a comic. He stands on stage and he takes full ownership of that space and he's responsible for filling the void with his own words. And he's not used to playing well with others. You know, he doesn't come from the groundlings or UCB or any kind of comedy improv scenario where you're being generous with, with, you know, letting other people kind of have their jazz solos, you know, he was just the soloist himself. So doing that podcast really, really enacted, you know, it sort of um, activated brand new skills for him. And he really had to learn how to listen and to let other people talk. And that enabled him to, it turned out to be really good groundwork for, for acting, as you say. I, I read an interview uh, recently, may have been on the New York tour, where he talked about the fact that he, he wasn't aware of the camera. And that's, I think you said, wow, what a a gift that is to have that, to be so locked in with your scene partner that you forget about the camera. Well, it is. And I've worked with a lot of folks who can't help but be aware of it, you know, um, and who are just so self-conscious about the fact that it's right there in their faces. And he has this really weird, um, (laughs) beautiful (laughs) ability to just to just shut all that out and not, not just the camera, but the whole crew, you know, it's such an artificial setting. I mean, making a movie is, is a really TV shows. It's such a strange way of working because, you know, I always say everybody is working their ass off on set, but nobody has a harder job than the actor. And the good ones make it seem like breathing. They make it seem so easy, but it's really difficult to just completely shut out the weird lights, and, the, and all these weird people standing around staring at you, you know, and all the equipment and to just home in on who you're talking to and what's going on emotionally in the scene and then make yourself, you know, available emotionally. It's, it's not an easy gig at all. And uh, it's, it's really kind of magical when somebody can make it make it work. We're talking with Lynn Shelton about her wonderful new movie, Sword of Trust. Uh, laugh out loud, funny. But the scenes that stand out to me are a couple of very poignant scenes. And one is early in the film when your character arrives. Uh, were you were you reluctant at all to cast yourself in that role? 
I was very reluctant, and I blame my my co-writer, Michael Bryan. Michael, Michael Bryan is an amazing performer, but he's really made a living recently as a writer, and but he never wanted to give up performing, and he just assumed I was the same way, because I started out as an actor, and then I really turned my attention to directing, and, um, you know, I love acting, but truth be told, I'd be happy to just direct the rest of my life and never act again, you know, um, but he just... He just kept insisting that I had to take a role in the movie, and I kept saying, no, I'm not going to be in the movie, Mike, and he just, I finally relented because he wouldn't let go of it, and I thought I was just going to be a random, very, um, you know, kind of like a tiny little cameo of just somebody who comes in, like there's a character in the, in the movie that comes in to pick up a coat that she pawned <laughs> earlier, and I thought that was going to be me. I thought I would be doing something like that. Um, but then I realized that, and I also, I, I said, well, you know, I have always wanted to play a junkie and I could imagine that somebody strung out coming in and wanting to, you know, pawn something so they could get drugs. So I thought, well, I'll be that. It'll be fun, you know? And then, um, I realized that as we were writing the script, we needed some way to track Mel's emotional arc through the, through the film. Mm -hmm. Mel is the character that Mark plays. And I realized that maybe this is an opportunity that her character could be, a way to do that. And she wouldn't really have to show up in the movie more than just one real scene. And then another point he sees her from a distance, but mostly she's just referred to, you know, after that, she does never have to be seen again. And so um, we just ended up incorporating her into a, giving, giving her a more weight. Well, it's um, great. And I was, I was really happy to be able to do that because I actually had a really wonderful time acting with Mark. And, and that was just sort of a gift that I wasn't expecting. <laughs> And, and it raises the emotional stakes and, and sets up that wonderful scene. And I have to say, it's the first time I can think of in a film where you had an incredible monologue delivered in the back of a box truck. Yeah. And what's really amazing is that there were some scenes in that movie that were, I mean, the the, the plot was really tightly structured. And there were many scenes like the Mel Deirdre scene actually was pretty well written out, honestly. Um, it was loose the way we approached it, but it really was, you know, a lot of those lines were written. The back of the van scene, which is arguably the heart of the whole movie, it says in the script, they get to know each other in the back of the van. And then we spent an entire day, you know, figuring out what that scene was going to be. Now, everybody coming into the, by the time they came to set, they really had a strong sense of who their characters were and what their backstories were. So a lot of that groundwork had been done previously, but all the little details that get filled in um, you know, on we're, we're happening on the day. You know, Mark comes up with all these details that he brings in from the time he spent in his um, youth in the in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and he, you know, refers to specific restaurants and and just he 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 sort of paints this picture in his head, this built memory um, that is not his own. You know, he sort of pictured himself, and he remembered all of these folks on heroin. In, in amongst the you know people that he was living with and living in that neighborhood with, and he just kind of like inserted this character's experience um, into that group of folks, and it it really um, it's kind of insane what he does. It's a kind of an alchemy that that he creates. It's just beautiful. Uh, one of your executive producers is uh, Joe Swanberg, who's been on our show. We love his work. Mark Duplass is a great friend of ours who's uh, been on a, a bunch of times. And uh, you guys are, are labeled as uh, people in the mumblecore genre. To me, that's always been uh, an odd name for it because I, I look at what's out there in the, in the world of cinema, particularly in the summertime, and it's a lot of comic books and a lot of stuff blowing up. And I look at the movies that you make, that Joe makes, that Mark makes, 
as movies for grown-ups and not mumblecore. Yeah, uh, totally agreed. Yes, and um, I yeah, it's a pretty um, it's a pretty annoying at this point um, term, you know, that that just kind of rankles a little bit. And I definitely think that um, whatever made that. Get, you know, whoever came up with that moniker and whatever gave us that label is pretty tired by now because, <laughs> you know, it, it basically the only thing that was bringing us all together at the time where we were making, we weren't waiting for permission for other people, you know, from other people to make our films. So we were, it was very DIY. We just sort of grabbed cameras and grabbed friends and made movies. And we, we all got sort of, it was nice to be actually put together into a little bit of a movement because I think it put more of a spotlight on all of our little films that would have been harder to shine um, had they just been coming out, you know, individually. But um, the name itself is so annoying because I don't, you know, there's nobody mumbling in my movies. No, <laughs> ever. No. So in any of ours, really, for that matter. <clears throat> so it's sort of a cute little thing that somebody, you know, sort of latched onto. But, um, yeah, I think we're well beyond that label for sure. You know, even if it never, whether it fit or not at the time, it certainly doesn't anymore. You know, we've, the scope of our films and um, and the variety of, of uh, approaches and budgets has, has long, you know, sort of left that, that behind, I think. Well, I love the films you did with Mark Humpday. Uh, your sister's sister was so wonderful. The film you did with Jay Duplass. And I, I guess I, I go back to improvisation and in improv, the best humor comes out of truth and it comes out of reality. And it seems like the consistent thread in all of your films, Lynn, real people placed in somewhat extraordinary situations. I would have to agree. That's true. I actually had somebody say to me the other night after a screening, um, that she believes that comedy is empathy. And mm. I was just, I was floored by that because I really immediately saw what she meant. You know, she said, I really get a big belly laugh only when I feel like I recognize the people on the screen, which is exactly what I'm aiming for. You know, I want to, I want to create real people that you really care about because you, you, you see their humanity, you know, and you, and you feel their humanity and that is empathy, you know, right there. So that's where the the sort of full bellied laughter, organic laughter comes from. And the thing that's nice about improvisation is that it, it's so it, it creates a, a sensibility on the screen that's very dynamic because you literally have no idea what each person is going to be saying. <laughs> you know, it wasn't predetermined. And that's because that's how it was on the set, you know. And so there's a full engagement with the actors, each with the other, because. You have to be really listening um, because you don't know what the other person is going to be saying. And no matter, you know, you're always suspending your your disbelief when you're working with a predetermined script because you know exactly what the person is going to say next, you know, after you say your line. And you have to pretend you don't know, you know, and that's a hard <laughs> that's a hard road to toe. So if you really don't know what they're going to be saying, it's a lot easier to just like stay completely engaged and you know, and really just um, tune in, you know, with all with all of your senses. And uh, that comes across, I think, on screen. It sure does. Well, sort of trust. It's everything I look for in a movie. It's smart. It's funny. It's poignant. And it's very, very honest. Uh, Lynn, I'm a big fan of your work. Congratulations on this terrific film. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. 
Oh, Rich, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Glad it finally happened. Lynn Shelton talking about her terrific new movie, Sword of Trust, in theaters all over the country and available on demand as well. Uh, Our thanks to Lynn and thanks to Ken Burns for chatting with us about his documentary series, Country Music. September 15th, it premieres on PBS. We remind you the podcast is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. If you like the podcast, hey, give us a nice review. We'd appreciate that. Tell your friends, subscribe, spread the word, make the world a better place, or at least our world a better place. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time on Downtown, the podcast.